This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan. Unlimited data, talk, and text on a reliable 5G network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision making. Available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. Family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. In times of traffic, your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic. Video streams at up to 480p. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, we are experiencing technical difficulties. This is the Bobby Cast. Welcome to this episode of the Bobby Cast. It's all about, well, behind the scenes of the music industry. How does a song get on the radio? What exactly does a producer do? What are the day to day tasks of an artist manager? How do record labels and radio work together? All these questions will be answered in this episode. We get into it. Now, throughout the years, I've talked to some of the best in business from managers to producers to songwriters to journalists to label executives, and you're going to hear from artist managers like Cappy, who is Luke Combs' manager, record label CEO John Esposito, who just retired but was somebody who was massive in the industry for so many years, producer Dan Huff, the head of IR Country Rod Phillips, I could keep going on and on, but you're going to hear it all here. This is going to be a good one, especially if you love behind the scenes. Since I've talked to so many people in the industry, we're breaking this one down into two parts. We've been very lucky that a lot of folks that work in this creative space and a lot of different ways have stopped by. Now to kick off part one of behind the scenes of the music industry, it's Luke Combs' manager, Cappy, who has been with Luke since day one. I mean, I would even say back before day one actually happened. Cappy talks about that and what a typical day looks like for him as a manager and then as a manager who has started his own management company. What was it about Luke early on? Because you didn't meet while you were in Nashville. Was it like a, a club? I'm just trying to recall. Yeah, so the way it all happened is uh, a, a guy named Bradley Jordan who owns Peachtree Entertainment called me. I was living in California and I was working for Six Man, which is the company before I started with Luke. And he said, you've always wanted to be a manager. You're 42 years old. You're throwing your life away if you don't do this. You're going to regret it. And he's my best friend. And he can say those things to me. And he hit me right between the eyes. And I was like, you're right. So I decided to move back. I was going to work with another. I, I looked at a couple other artists. None of that worked out. And he calls me and goes, I found your guy. His name is Luke Combs. We're going to do a show. And you're going to see him play. I said, fantastic. He goes, you have to buy the show. Because he doesn't have a show in the books. He has no shows. So you're going to have to buy the show, rent the venue, and throw the, throw the event. So we so did. So buy the show. Explain that. So we had to go and pay Luke to come and play the show because he didn't have any shows on the books. 
So this is so early in his career. He only had one show he had done, which was with Bradley at um, in Rome, Georgia, at the brew house. So we, we bought the show, um, paid Luke $750, paid $750 to the venue. And I remember being, there's only going to be three people at the show, Bradley, Luke, and me. And during sound check, Luke started playing a song. And he's like, hey, man, can I text you these lyrics? Can you print them out for me? I'm like, sure. It was Hurricane. First time he ever played it live in front of a crowd. The only place where it lived was on Facebook on a, on a video. So anyway, he's singing in, in sound check. I'm like, man, this guy's really good. Like this guy can really sing in the band. And so I walk outside and, you know, it's like nine o'clock and I'm about to open the doors. You know, it's a college town and there's people in line, no pre-sold tickets. And I'm like, wow, 83 people were there for this first show. And he had nothing going on. And they were singing every word to every song on his first two EPs that had come out, which is six songs. She got the best of me and the way she rides and can I get an outlaw? And then he played hurricane and they were singing the words of hurricane. It had only been on a Facebook video. And for all the years that I worked with, I was working with, you know, John Mayer and kiss and, and kid rock and all these, uh, Paramore three eleven, these super passionate fan bases. And they would sing every word to every single song, even the deep cuts. They were doing the same thing. And I was like, he has it. He has, not only does he have the, the chops, because he has that and he has the songs, but he's got fans that are already in love with him. And as soon as you see that, and that's what I knew, I was like, this is it. Like, he has it. I can take this. And I told him, I was like, Luke, in five years, we'll have you playing theaters on a tour bus and you'll be making seven figures. And we, I, can, I can guarantee that in five years because I saw so many bands do it and with just with fans. And um, he's like, okay, if you can do that, you know, you're my manager, let's go. And that's kind of how the whole thing started in, in the beginning. And, and we did that, you know, we really stayed focused on, on the fan base. And that's all we really focus on is how do we affect the bootleggers, the, which is, which is what we call his fan base. Um, and, uh, it works fans first. That's all we really focus on. Um, when it comes down to it is how does it affect the fan? So you're living in California, you yep. go to Georgia to do this, mm-hmm. were you already going, all right. I got to get to Nashville or was it after that night with Luke Combs? After with Luke and he said, I, if you want to be my manager, you have to live in Nashville. Was he living in Nashville at the time? He was. Time? He okay. was. He was so already here. How quick did you move? Uh, it took me six weeks. And six s- weeks. So you go, yeah, I got this new artist. Mm-hmm. Listen, let's, let's be honest. If you're just managing an artist who's not making any money, mm-hmm. I'll just talk from the experience with my manager. Sure. I don't put words in your mouth. My management makes 15% of what I make. Sure. If I'm making zero... 15% of what I make is zero. Zero. So that's you moving to Nashville. Mm-hmm. Did you have some money saved up? I had a little bit of saved up. And when, when Luke and I sat down, I remember the first time sitting in his apartment around, you know, the glass table with the four wrought iron chairs in his, in his uh, apartment. I said, man, what's the most important thing for you? And he's like, man, I really hate driving to these rights I'm in, in this old Dodge neon that I had. And it was, it's, it, I don't want to. In fact, I park and walk two blocks in the heat. And I was like, look, I won't take a dime from you until you're making money and we can buy you a car. So what we would do is after every run, any extra money we had left over, we would put into a bank bag that lived inside a coffee can that lived in his kitchen. And that's what we, we stacked cash in there. And then the rest of the time I was just using my money uh, to live off of or fund whatever we needed. If we needed extra hotel rooms or we didn't make enough money that night for gas in the van, I, I mean, I just came out of my pocket and did it. And because I wasn't going to give up. And I think that's the difference of becoming a manager at 42 years old and already having and living a life. I was like, I'm, I'm all in on this guy. Cause I, I'm, I'm okay to fail. 
because I'm, I'm ready to, to make this happen. So I'm going to go all in. And um, I eventually, it was April. So this, that was September. It was April. I was sleeping on my couch because I was renting out my room in this house that I had in East Nashville that I was living in um, that was, it was a, a hovel, but it's all I could afford. Um, I had somebody living there to help me pay for my bills. So I was sleeping on my couch. I was now 43 years old, sleeping on my couch, driving the van. I had sold everything that I could sell to have money. And what I would do every night uh, as I would go to the green room and I would take a merch bin in there, but it wasn't a merch bin. It was my food stash because I would take the food out of the green room, the Funyuns and the bottled water and whatever we had and put it in there. So I had food to eat because I couldn't afford anything because I had to scrape everything together so we could make it. And um, I remember getting there and we had enough money to buy Luke the car. And I never once was like, he never knew any of this. Like I didn't let him know where, where it stood financially. I was late on my rent. I was late. I was all my, all my credit cards were past due. Um, it was, I was like, I was sitting there one night and I was like, I'm like almost rocking back and forth. You know, um, I was like this, he has it. I know he does. I know we're going to do this. And we bought him the car. It was a Ford, Ford fusion. The very next week we got an offer to play a show, um, in the outer banks, uh, at an ATV park for $10,000. I was like, wow. And then the week after that, we got a private for $10,000. So instantaneously I made $3,000 and I was like, this is going to work because you got the truck. So now, which is, by the way, let me just stop you before we go forward and sure. say for you to go, I'm not taking any money until you're able to not only make a little money for yourself, but to pay off this first part of what can make your dream. I, I haven't heard of such thing unless it's by someone who has a lot, a lot of money and is pretty rich to do that. Like I've heard of some friends of mine that are athlete managers or business and they can sure. do that and they can go, Hey, listen, I got four other clients here that are millionaires. Right. I won't take a dime until you're, but you weren't doing that. You didn't have anything. No. You were taking nothing while you had nothing. Yeah. You believe that much. I, I've, I've never stopped believing. And I know you believe now and I know you believed early, but I've had things in my career where I'm like, I'm so for sure of this. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, my head's down and I'm not stopping. And I never stopped. However, there were times where it got to be so questionable. I was right. like, am I delusional that I believe so much? Because I do believe in certain things I've done so much, but there are times where there's so much pushback where I start to question if I'm crazy. Yeah. Did well, you ever question if you were crazy? I, my parents questioned me, I think very early on. They're like, are you sure you want to do this? Like, are you sure you want to give up a 15 year career? I know my brother was the same way. Are you sure you want to do this? Now they see it. But I mean, I think it's different when you're standing there in a room and you're watching people pour their hearts out and they're and what they're doing and in, in, in the connection that Luke had with the fans. And I, I saw it so early on. I was like, this is real. Like you, you cannot create this no matter what. And I was like, it's going to happen. It's just going to, I just have to weather the storm. And I don't know whatever the higher power is that's out there said, I'm going to test you. And if you don't break, I'm going to reward you. And I never broke. So when did the record labels, and then what was, was that just fury? It was everybody after Luke at once, or was it one and then one season's cool and comes after it? How did that go? Well, you know, uh, we signed with uh, River House, um, which is Lynn Oliver, and Lynn and I are friends from years and years and years ago. And I took her to the music, and she heard it, and she loved it. So she signed Luke to an independent deal. And then she was distributing it through 30 Tigers. And then as it started to pick up momentum, and it, it got some, uh, some, some radio play, and then everything started to kind of snowball from there because they started recognizing it and it started to stream. And, um, it, and, and people started to like perk up a little bit because we didn't play any shows in town. 
you know, the big first show that we did in town was Whiskey Jam anniversary show. And then after that show, um, because of the, the pickup we had from the early independent stuff that we had done with the radio and everything like that and people paying attention, then that happened. There was a bunch of A&R people there. Um, actually, Bo Martinovich was there from from uh, Sony and actually sent a, a, a video that night of everybody singing Hurricane to to the, to the Sony team. They decided to have conversations. So we had conversations with three labels in the very beginning, and it became very, very quick and, and, and hot and fast. And um, we opted to go with Sony, and it was a, it was a great opportunity. Were you leveraging? Because anytime anybody bidding on me, we've always leveraged. Right. right. You know what? And at that point, we really didn't. And that's not one of the things that I do very well. I'm not a big leverager in that, in the, in the sense that I'm very transparent. In fact, I'm working on a deal right now for one of my other artists that I just sent. Like they're like, well, well how much do you have invested in this artist already? And I was like, twenty nine thousand eight hundred six dollars. And they're like, oh wow. I was like, yeah. Here, let me see the spreadsheet. Instead of like bumping it or padding it or anything like that, I just don't. I'm not a. I'm not a giant leverage uh, person. But but for example, yes. There's a little deal happening with me a few years ago, two years ago. Right. One of the major streaming companies said, we'll give you $1. Well, then I go over to iHeart and go, well, they're offering me $1. Right. Like, this is leverage too. So you, can you be $1? And they're like, well, yes, we can. Well, then it's that. We'll just call it yeah, another that, one. That, that, Did that, you do okay, that? Yeah, Were you yeah, able to do that? A little bit of that happened. But I think, you know, the, really the reason we went with Sony and the, and the biggest thing that, that really made that um, over the other two was the relationship that they wanted to have with Luke um, and the relationship they wanted to have with us. So like, I think that was what really won it out. But no, it didn't get into a giant bidding war at all. It really didn't. They, Sony came very honest and, and straightforward from the, from the beginning. And you know, we had already had Hurricane out there, so they also, they also had to be ready just to pick up and go with what we had already done and flip it and, and, and take it from there, and they did. Before you, you know, had your own company and... and- 10, how many artists do you have under you now? I have 12 artists and 14 employees. So before that version of you, whenever sure. you're just managing and you're, you're, you're really catching on as a manager, what is a day like as a manager of an artist right. on like a Wednesday? Uh, I can give you a, like today. Uh, you know, there's a breakfast meeting first uh, with what, somebody here in town, 8 a.m. Like somebody like you're thinking about signing or somebody that you're... No, I'll go through my full day. Alarm goes off at 4 a.m. Okay, so I'm up at 4 make coffee, let the dogs out, spend 30 minutes with nothing on and just enjoying a cup of coffee. You mean clothes, no clothes on? Well, a pair, pair, pair of underwear. Okay. Pair of underwear. <laughs> Nobody wants to see that, Bobby. Um, so I, uh, I, I enjoy a nice cup of coffee. Like I said, I live on the Cumberland River, so I get to enjoy that in the morning, watch the sun come up. And then I start reading Twitter for an hour. And I type in all my artist's name and I read the last 24 hours of Twitter. Wow. Because that gives me a pulse of what's kind of going on. Um, and then I start answering emails. And I get, get, get to a good point. So I have to be below 10 emails every day when I finish the day. Or, and when I go to start the day, with all the emails that come in overnight, I file them down and I start my day. Then I went and, and met with another manager here in town this morning. So I try to meet with a manager that I've never met before every month because that's, it helps me increase my network. And nobody would meet with me early on. So it's kind of like my, my give back. I, I want to give back to the, to the industry. So I meet with a manager that I don't know. Uh, met with a great guy today. We had a great conversation. I went straight from there. Uh, did a phone call at, uh, right to my office, started working there. I've had four conference calls today, 
and then I'm coming over here and then I'm leaving here. I'll jump back on my phone and then I'll be on it until probably about seven o'clock tonight. What are these conference calls about though? Not specifically, but is it? Sure. Like, so we had a call today about Luke's routing. Uh, for, for, like tour routing? Tour routing, yeah, yeah with our agent, uh, Aaron Tannenbaum. And um, then I'll ha- I had a call with uh, a promoter. Um, I had a call with my team. Uh, I had a call with uh, two of my managers internally. So, um, and then that doesn't include just the random calls that just happened that I'm like, you know, you know, I had to change the autoresponder on my, on my iPhone to say, um, I'm on a call, call you right back, or I'm in a meeting, please text like the ones. And then I have to go back through those and return all those phone calls. So at the end of the day, I also go to my missed call page and just start calling everybody back on there. Um, and, and that's essentially what it is. It, it, no day, <clears throat> excuse me, no day ever goes as planned. Tom can tell you that no day ever goes as planned. I have, I've never had a day go perfectly as planned. And I'm usually canceling one, if not two things a day. Every day, something every cancel because of a fire because of a fire of, of some sort. Uh-huh. Because even if it's not an, an artist fire, it might be an employee fire. And you know, my employees are, are the, one of the most important things to me. Um, and, uh, if they have a problem, I need to be there for them too. Whenever you and Luke were traveling together, because Luke is what? 30 now? 31. And you're, what are you, 45, 46? 48. Okay, did people ever think you were like his older brother? They thought it was his dad. Or, oh. <laughs> and this is what Combs does. So Combs goes, he goes, that's not my dad. He goes, that's my granddad. And I'm like, why do you do that? And I almost made a shirt that said, not Luke's dad. That's funny. Yeah, not Luke's dad. But everybody, so people would walk up to me and they'd be like, man, isn't it fun to watch your son sing these, sing these songs? I'm like, man, do I look like his dad? Like biologically, yes, I'm, I'm 18 years older than that's Luke. That's funny. But uh, no, I'm, I'm not. But yes, a lot of people think that I'm his dad. The first time you heard him play Hurricane. Yes. Did you, did you get it? I did. I got it. I was like, this is it. I would watch those early videos of him playing at bars and playing Hurricane and seeing the whole bar screaming back to him. This song almost got me fired. Why? The video shoot. The video shoot at Wild, uh, no, at Coyote Joe's in Charlotte. We were doing the video shoot and the video company gave me a megaphone and they're like, all right, why don't you tell Luke what to do? And I was like, yeah, totally. Give me the megaphone. So I'm doing, I'm like, all right. Take 17 of Hurricane. And he had to like, you know, he has to do it. He goes, take the microphone away and get out of the building. Because <laughs> I'm about to fire you. Because he, he, he was so, because he's never done a video before. And like, you're having to mouth the words of your song 17 times. And again, you've dealt with this before. And he, he threw me out of the building. And I had to go outside. And he, and he let me back in. And he's like, he's like, look, dude, I, I just had a moment, you know, it, it wasn't like a, it was, it wasn't like a sorry. It was like, you were kind of being annoying. I just need to let you know that. And I was like, yeah. So from that point on, we understand how videos are shot and I don't say a <laughs> word. Hang tight. The Bobby cast will be right back. This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan, unlimited data, talk and text on a reliable 5g network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision-making available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan, not combinable with auto pay discount in times of traffic. Your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic video streams at up to 480p. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves 
to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Welcome back to the Bobbycast. John Esposito, also known as Espo, was the CEO of Warner Music Nashville for 13 years. He signed artists like Dan and Shay, Ashley McBride, Zach Bryan, and here he is talking about why he signed them. Whenever you t- talk about magic and I say, what magic comes to mind? And that's such a vague question, but the three minutes and 30 seconds can be any song that you, as a head, believed in quickly and said, that's it. Because again, you're a player. I want people to know this too. You're, when you love music, it's not just you listening. Like You are musical in every way. You're notorious. People come and play with you in your office like after the CMAs. Or, what, what's the magic for you that when you think that song was magic immediately? Well, I can tell you... Um, a few popped to my head when you say that. Um, and then I want to go back to a little Blake Shelton story. But I remember when Blake was second-guessing himself. He already had 25, 26 number one records and thinking, well, maybe they don't care about me anymore. And I, I went to a dinner with him and Gwen. Um, and, uh, you know, we both were telling him, you know, get over that. You know, people want you. And he said, well, I got something booked for the studio on Monday. I don't know. I just don't know. You know, anyhow. And on Thursday walks a song called God's Country. As soon as we heard the demo, Blake sends me the most hilarious texts in the world, many of which I couldn't uh, let (laughs) anybody ever see. Um, But it was, you know... um, I actually wish I could find that one right now and share it with you, but it would be something along the lines of Espo. I think I just found money, real money. And I said, okay, Scott, send me this song. And I hear the demo of, uh, of God's Country. There's an artist on Thursday morning, not sure he wants to go to the studio, who puts out the biggest song of his career that it's recorded three days later. And you knew the magic of that song. And you knew that he was going to deliver it. I felt the same thing um, a lot when I heard a demo, which my buddy Dan Smyers is still pissed off at me about, of From the Ground Up. 
and it was with a little drum machine and an acoustic guitar. And you just knew that song was going to change people's lives. It such a resonance, such a, um, such a such an amazing message in it. I started playing it for a few people who came in the office, and the word got back to him, and he says, "Don't you ever do that again." <laughs> you know, he's he's one of these the finished product he, only he guys. Yeah, you know, he uh, you know, Dan, we're Smyers is super close to us, and Caitlin and Abby are really great friends, and Dan is an OCD guy like myself, everything has got to be in the exact order. He's a, he's a perfectionist. Um, and I was telling him that you guys did such a good job, yourself, your team, Dan and Shay, from that song, because that was a graduation for them whenever you guys did For the Ground Up. Because I, remember the, I still remember the visuals, and I see visuals of everything all the time. I'm constantly inundated with new music, new clips, new content. What about this? What about this? I remember what you guys did and how you built the, 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 like the church, the, all of it, all the aesthetic for that song. You graduated them at that point because you believed in that song so much. Yeah. And, and so as you say that, that to me was a big point in Dan and Shay's career because they had, they did the work and you guys believed in it so much that you pushed it and it was massive and it led them to the next graduation step. You got to be proud of those guys. I am. I'll tell you a funny story about Dan and Shay. I was riding to a studio to meet Jay Joyce, a, a, uh, producer of, of uh, very much notoriety here in town. And on the way, Ben Vaughn, who runs the uh, uh, Warner Publishing Company, Warner Chapel, said, I got this new song from this duo called Ragtop Red. You got to listen to it. And on comes uh, um, uh, 19 You and Me. I think it's damn near the finished product we ended up putting out. I said, Ragtop Red, what's that? He goes, you just got to meet these guys. So the next day, I had Dan and uh, Shay in my office. And, uh, you know, you, you do these auditions and you think they're going to last about 45 minutes. There are some you wish were over in 10 minutes, but you still have to be courteous, <laughs> right? I never want anybody. They got their final moment to get there in front of the head of a label, you know. Well, after about 10 songs, I'm looking over at Scott Hendricks, our head of A&R uh, at the time, and ultimately the producer of 80 number one records in this format. And I, I'm like nodding. and He's giving me a little nod, but, you know, we've never done this before. And I'm like on my fifth nod. And I finally said, you guys are signing to Warner today. You're not leaving until you're signing to Warner. Okay. I went over and I locked the door and I said, what do you want to drink? turned into six hours in my office, them playing one smash after another. And then I realized they didn't have a pot to piss in. So I called up my wife and said, Chantel, would you please cook dinner for them? Cook dinner for them five nights in a row over in that Bellmead house and just said, I'm telling you, I'm not letting you go until you become um, Warner Brothers artist here in town. And, you know, that uh, thankfully it worked out. What about Ragtop Red? How did you convince them to lose? Oh, yeah, I forgot that part of the well, story. Well, yeah, I don't... <laughs> I mean, that ain't, that's a very good name, you know? And it also doesn't represent them, Ragtop it, Red. It, it didn't. Well, I, so two funny pieces in this uh, vignette. I have a Steelers wall in my office because I grew up in the Pittsburgh area. And Dan Smyers walks right up to it and stares at it. And I said, you're not from Cleveland, are you? No, no, I'm from Pittsburgh. I'm thinking, good, I got one. I got one here. Hey, guys, but about that name. 
And without missing a beat, they said, oh, we hate that name. We dropped it. We're Dan and Shay. And I thought, I don't have to have that goddamn conversation. Nice. <laughs> That's funny. So that was it. They were that like, yeah, it. we already dropped it. We're, we're, just, we're Dan and Shay. Yeah. Um, whenever it came to the branding of those guys, that and that cross, that yeah. whatever that is, like that's what I think of when I think of them. That decision obviously had to be okayed by you as well because it's Dan and Shay. Even that little thing that is so branded is so important. Do you remember when you guys settled on that even? Well, you know, um, you'll laugh as I say this. We love those guys. There are certain things you just don't argue with. Mm, so it was them. They that, came was and said, them. that was it. Yeah, it's good. You it's know, good. It works. If it makes you feel good, mm. you know, um, and, you know, we it, it it probably created a little confusion in the early days in terms of what is it? Is it Dan, Dan plus Shea? Shea? Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah. You get a um, couple of hit records, people forget. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they learn it. They forget that they were confused and yes. they learn it forever. That's right. Um, I remember talking to John Peaks a little bit when I first came to town. He was always super nice to me. Who another? Who was a guy? By the way, I didn't go to dinner with him, and he's not a record executive. But he was a guy too who kind of pulled me aside and was like, "Yeah, you're different, like me, and it ain't gonna be easy for people like you." And here's some stuff that I've been through. And again, I was so appreciative of that. And I never listen to music with people because one, it's awkward to just nod your head and be like, yeah. Because you always have to act like you like it, even if you don't. That's right. But he, he played me this artist and he said, you know, we're not really doing much with her now, but we really believe in her and there's going to be some, there's going to be something here when we figure out exactly how to do it because what it is is awesome. And he played me Ashley McBride hmm. because she's from Arkansas like myself. And he kind of used that as a conduit to get to playing the music. And what you guys have been able to do with Ashley feels very strategically, awesomely non-traditional, how you made her a star. And to see her be a superstar now is her talent, but also you, your talent, you guys' talent. To, to sign Ashley McBride and to have a vision for her, I imagine there was, I don't know, were there a lot of meetings? Like what kind of artist do we want her to be, even though she already knows who she is? Uh, no meetings to have that discussion. Um, I saw Ashley maybe six years before we signed her, and there was no doubt she was incredibly talented, but um, um, not ready. And she admits that, too. Why not? What does that mean, not ready? Um, green, the songs weren't captivating. Um, the performance was, you could tell, you know, that she could sing. She might have been over-singing some of it. You know, you're young, you're trying to impress and and uh, God, I I really just can't. Um, even though I play guitar and I play drums and I play in bands, I haven't had audition to audition in, in in front of a bunch of wankers from this business. So I can only imagine how people can exaggerate to a point where it's kind of distracting. But then I saw her about three months before we signed her, and I was like. Uh, we we have to do this. And Chris Lacey, uh, the the now uh, co-president of our label and the head of A&R, was 100% in, in agreement. And then everybody wanted to sign her. And I got to tell you, um, um, I think part of why she ended up with us is because 
She knew we weren't going to ask her to do anything but be herself. I think we have a great reputation in that regard. Um, I hear I hear horror stories of people who actually go and mix records for artists that they the artist didn't even know they were doing. It's like, mm. are you kidding me? I'd fire me uh, if if that ever happened. But I'll never forget for the rest of my life. Um, this will be self-aggrandizing comment eight probably. Um, everybody's trying to sign her, and John Peets, who I really love, that guy is the real deal. He's he's the smartest um, dude, you know, and creative and and willing to go on non traditional paths with all the artists on his roster. He calls me up. I'm in Nantucket. He says, "I've never done this before, but I want you to uh, agree to something." And I said, "What's that?" He goes, "Ashley only wants to be with you." Will you just promise me you'll give us a fair deal? She doesn't want to take another meeting with another record label. She's found her home, and she's sick of this game. And can we just shake that we're going to work out terms everybody will be happy with? And I said, I've never done that before either. But yes, I knew she would be that mm. important. you know. And I think that one of the great things about what we've been able to do, part of it's probably accidental because I didn't know shit about country music. Um, our roster is very diverse because it's filled with people that go from Ingrid Andrus, which you wouldn't necessarily think, why would you sign her to a country label, uh, right? Or Dan and Shay, they were pretty pop sounding, you know, um, uh, were, they are, um, they can be. Um, um, Ashley, so traditional, and there was nothing that we had in the 12 songs that uh, were album one that we thought no brainer to get played on on country radio but boy once people got to hear her and got to experience it live it was going to become a thing and we have to have the patience now with that comes you have to have blake shelton's and kenny chesney's and dan and shays and brett eldridge and others producing millions for me the joy is the success they can all have but getting to play in sandboxes with people like avriana right and know that uh you, you can be changing lives, uh, you know, by taking a risk on somebody who skirts the edge of whatever people might call country music, but it's important music. Now, Zach Bryan is with you guys. Yeah. When you sign somebody that has, in the last couple of years, that has grown so much because of their virility, like TikTok, they blow up. Is that a whole different negotiation? How did that come together? Are these artists that blow up, or is it different to negotiate with them than someone who you just know is going to be good playing a showcase somewhere? Well, I dare say, um, as a generalization, which I uh, tend to hate, um, the rules of engagement have changed so very much in a very short period of time. Um, I, I would say, and they're changing ever, um, right now, right before us, but maybe go back two years. Uh, it was... For the first bunch of years before that, hey, I only want to sign with you if you tell me when the radio ad date is. Now it is. Tell me how you're going to bring the uh, story of my artist to the world. Um, I, you know, I dare say, and I tell your your buddy Rod Phillips this all the time, r radio, by getting records to take a year to get up the chart, is hurting itself. 
because people need discovery. But it's forced a lot of looking at, and it's not just streaming, although streaming is a lot of fun when when you happen to get that um, uh, joy early on. But just ways to get a story told through various uh, social media places and hopefully the result of getting some streaming um, early on has has become the day, you know. And I swear to God, I don't go after that in the name of being in lieu of radio because the big win is when you get to the top 20 at radio and everything's, um, you know, it, it tends to... Um, be smoking along in terms of how much consumption there is. A word that Kenny Chesney hates. I think he's kind of come around to understand that that is some weird part of our vernacular now. I kind of hate it too. I hate product. You know, I never call it product. But anyhow, um, my long-winded way of saying, so now artists are coming in and with a story like Zach Bryan, they have negotiating power that's very different. Mm-hmm than the one who's begging you to come see them in the club and they haven't built a following, you know? And do I think that'll become more mainstay? Yeah. Do I think it becomes, it goes from probably 5% of what gets signed to 50%? No, but it's going to be probably closer to 30 or 40%. You know, there's still going to be things like, hey, um, Bailey Zimmerman, who I loved when, you know, Folks, Bobby will just every once in a while text me and say, hey, I just met with this artist. I think they're the real deal. Right? Question mark. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know that you, will, even if they're your person, I know that you'll still be honest with me and go like, they have, a, they have the real potential to be the real deal. Or you'll go like, yep, they sure are. Yeah. I know you'll be honest with me. That's, that's and that's what right. I said. I, I, uh, I always will. And I was thinking to myself, well, here's a guy working on a pipeline two years ago, never picked up a guitar and sang. But boy, he has a way of connecting with people. Um, he was kind of in between the Zach Bryan building an audience over a period of time and uh, um, and and uh, the artist who you know has one song and you're hoping you, you bet on the right song. But I do think that we're going to get more and more uh, people trying to create a story that becomes compelling, it makes it easier for the manager and, and lawyers when they come knock on our door, you know, and, you know, I have a, I don't mind being held up if I believe there's a long term there. I was talking to Rod. I kind of cornered him on the air. I later apologized to him because I didn't mean to do it, but if we're on and I'm doing the show, I just fought, follow instinct and then apologize later. That's if we're live, you know, that's the deal. And he was walking by and I see him and I say, Hey Rod, come up. And I've talked to him about a couple of things. And I say, hey, why? What's the deal with Zach Bryan? Why are we not playing him more? Like, I, we can't get enough. I said, and I understand it's different. I'm on a nationally syndicated show. They don't just go willy nilly and throw songs into that. But I'm talking about just generally, like, why aren't we? And he goes, listen, I love him too. It doesn't sound like what everything else sounds. So we're like playing it in certain places to make sure. And I'm just like, can't you just go? It's awesome and and do it. Right. And I kind of got him into trouble because then people started attacking him, which I didn't mean to do. But I was just saying how I felt, and he was like, "Don't apologize. You do what you do. That's what you do on the air. And I'll do. And I'm 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 cool to, ha- to have to stand by something, even if I personally don't agree with. It, is what he said. He goes, "I love Zach Bryan, and I would play him on every station all the time. But if I do that, and he went down this executive 
talk that he has to report to his boss, right? So that being said, did that ever get back to you that I was fighting with Rod about Zach Bryan on the uh, air? Uh, no, the, the 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 that's probably because I'm uh, um, too distracted in life. Period. Um, um, but I understand the notion. It, this is an odd uh, retort or, or response to your question. I was with a, a radio programmer in Pittsburgh. I happened to go to Pittsburgh a lot because uh, I, I like my hometown. And he goes, are you guys releasing Zach Bryan now to purposely piss all of us people off who've been playing him for months? And now we've played him too many times? And I said, only if we were that smart. You know, no, we we didn't know whether anybody would ever want it. Mm. And then we kept seeing you all who were playing this in these Because we were playing them on the morning show. I was playing them too yeah. on the morning show, yeah. And you'd get spins in these, I mean, um, uh, streams in these markets mm. that were off the hook. And it was like, okay, even us geniuses should not overthink this and just put the damn record out. And look what it's doing. It's been the top uh, stream song in country music. I think it's in its 12th week or something like that. And it's probably in the radio chart somewhere in the uh, high twenties. I think is where we've reached yeah, so now far. Now it's starting to now it's starting to really have some some, yeah. some balls, you know. And as far as people have to pay attention to it because it's climbing so high, yeah, that it says, "Hello, I'm here. You need to play me." Because if you don't, you're real. You're real idiot. The Bobby Cast. We'll be right back. This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan. Unlimited data, talk, and text on a reliable 5G network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision making. Available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. Family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. In times of traffic, your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic. Video streams at up to 480p. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. (laughs) And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Welcome back to the Bobbycast. Legendary producer Dan Huff talks about what a producer does when it comes to making an album and the various albums that he produced. All right, so you work with Lone Star, and that's the that was the one where at least you said, hey, here's my resume, and it's quite big now because I did the Lone Star record. How many songs on the Lone Star record did you do? Did you do all of it? Yeah, that was that, that, was that record. I can't remember the time. Uh, Lonely Grill, it was a record. And, and there's a bunch of hits off that thing. So to, to a producer, because we move into the producer part, for my listeners that don't know exactly what a producer does, because luckily I do, and I didn't until I started going into the studio myself and yeah. seeing... The producer pretty much has has to hear and see everything. Mm-hmm. So now you're not just playing guitar. You're listen. You're putting keys on things. Like what yeah. is it, per, in your mind? How would you describe a record producer? But it's the person that gets it done. I mean, it, there's no set way to do it. I mean, you, you, I worked for great producers who were not musicians even who you know, couldn't talk in terms of musical language. They 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 couldn't tell you which chord to play or whatever. But they knew how to put teams together. I'm obviously a musician. So it's kind of like being a player coach, you know, that type of thing. I, and and it, it helps me cast. I'm a real believer in casting. You know, you don't put, I, I, I learned probably more about how to produce by, by working with producers who, who, you know, I was on the receiving end of some of their mistakes. You know, you get somebody cast who's not the right person to play and you're kind of, you know, pistol whipping him in, into, into doing something that he doesn't know how to do. You don't do that. You know, you, you play to people's strengths and, um, and so knowing who does what and who does what really well is a good is a good you know leg up in it and i know how to communicate i usually don't like to play guitar while i'm i'm producing i usually do it after the fact in in, uh, in the overdub scenario just because it's hard to when i sit and play guitar i'm a guitar player i can't help it i just that's that's kind of what who i am um when when and sometimes i will do it but but you you try to listen to the big picture you're 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 supposed to be listening to that relationship between the artist, that song, and the band. So that's the big picture. And then what kind of minutiae you get into is is kind of dependent on, you know, your ability and your interest. And some producers get, you know, get, you know, put on the gloves and get way down deep into it. Some producers hire that out, you know, and there's no right or wrong way of doing it. But in the end, does it work? That's what the record companies care about. My question, I guess, is, and so I'll go back to like the Beach Boys, for example. Whenever Brian Wilson would produce the Beach Boys... The band would go and tour, and yeah. he and he would have all the stuff ready for them, and you know the wrecking crew. I mean, yeah. all, all those guys were playing. The band wasn't really playing yeah. the records, yeah. but then they would go out on tour and play all the songs. Yeah. Now, as a producer, are there times where you're like, you know what, I'm producing a band, but to really get a good record, I need to get players in here and not the actual band. Yes. Is that ever awkward? Oh, it's always awkward, especially if the band. Now in Nashville, we set up a little bit differently. It 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 historically it's always been i think this town has been more of an extension of publishing and that's the way this the record business that's my view of it um touring is a separate entity you know and and so it it was you know the artists would come in with the producers with their players the studio players they would do that record would be cut the artists went out and did their thing with their bands and never did the two kind of intertwined you know what about a band though that's that's where now all of a sudden fast forward you know yeah, there are artists who who is like I want my sound. I don't want to sound like the last record, and it's and that's really tough to do because you get these musicians. 
the songs, I mean, pop music, pop country, it's all it's it's still a pretty narrow uh, tunnel to go through. Right. There's it's it's just the pop music in general. You get the same musicians, the same songs ish. Right. And it's going to kind of sound the same. So these artists have a have a have a real reason to say, I want my people. There's the rub, because sometimes there it, it's dependent on time. Um, ability, you know, just because you can play what's on the record doesn't mean you can create it, play it in, in in time, and be able to move on a moment's notice. So, so there's always some negotiation there. As a producer, I prefer having band members from the touring crews come in because I think that even though it takes a little bit longer sometimes, I think that gives it a little more identity. And now I would never ask you to name anyone, but has there been a situation where? The, a whole band that we would know as a band where the lead singer was the only because the band just didn't have the chops but the lead singer sang and the rest of the, the guys were studio players oh yeah oh that's a common that's really a common thing even absolutely. though that's the they're the real band like that's absolutely the whole. yeah I mean I, you know and it's just and again it you know I, mean, I understand somewhere I mean I, again I've worn both hats I've been a player on these things I before I used to uh, bef- uh, the first two records of Rascal Flats I played guitar on those records I was one of the, you know, Joe Don Rooney's a great guitar player. And oh, there you go. First song that we did. Yeah. That's, so that's my first song that I produced with him. And, and, and Mark Bright, Marty Williams produced the first two records. They were great. They had God Bless the Broken Road on it. I mean, this is great stuff. It was more studio players. I think Jay played a little bit on those records. He may have played a little bit more. I, I probably, you know, I, I probably don't have all my research, but I remember that we were all in there playing and, and I kept looking at Joe Don, dude, you need to play these things. And so when they decided to make a change and they uh, they called me, that was that was the big thing. You know, uh, I got Joe Don playing all that stuff. I mean, that's that's him now. Some of the rhythm parts I played or, or, or I would hire that out. And, but he was always there playing all the solos were Joe Don from that moment on. Those guys pretty proficient all the way around. Absolutely. Jay's a great bass player. Jay's a great musician, period. I mean, there's only three of them. So, um, and I think now, I mean, I still used other studio players. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I didn't use their road crew. And 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 to their credit, Jay, who is producing their records now, and they're great, really good records. I think he's using, I know he's using Jim Riley, their drummer, who's a great drummer. So, you know, I mean, producers get, you know, you get comfortable. You, they expect you to deliver the record label. And the band actually expects you to deliver. As long as you're having hits, you're in, right? So, so there is that. I think you said it. It's it's just awkward and uncomfortable, and you kind of got to navigate those those uh those situations. Kind of those today. with it only being three guys, but those three guys can play. Yeah, well, Gary doesn't play. I mean, he sings. Well, but he can play that voice. He plays that voice. <laughs> yeah, he can, yeah. Gary doesn't play at all. Gary. That was. I do have a great story about that song. This is, and I don't think they will mind it, it me telling this story. But that's this is a great story. And this is just this is just the, the beauty and the recklessness and craziness of these guys. You know, so. I think the first song that I did with them when, when they said they're going to make a producer change, it was, I think we, we recorded the song, um, life is a highway for that car. Yeah. yeah. So it was great. And everybody's in there. We did that. And it was, it, you know, it was like, we, we really nailed it. I mean, doing a cover song, sometimes scary anyway. So and it was going to be, well, in a month and a half, we're going to start the record. And it was great. And, you know, very loose and the guys are touring all the time. So we show up in the studio and, uh, this is out in Franklin and we're going to cut what hurts the most that night. Right. So we show up and I think it's, we're going to start at seven o'clock and um, it's about eight o'clock. And I asked Jay, I said, Hey, so when's Gary going to show up? And just without missing a beat, Jay goes, Oh, he's not coming. I said, huh? He said, 
No, he's hunting. This is this is whatever season. Whatever, <laughs> I don't know what you shoot right now, right? You know, uh, but there is there is a kind of a, a season, right? And and he acted like you know, well, duh. I mean, everybody knows that Gary's not going to show up during hunting season. And I'm sitting there going, well, I didn't get the memo. I mean, I'm assuming that we need a singer to sing this song that we've never, you guys have never. And Jay goes, hold on, hit a key. He goes, mm, mm. about that key. That'll be about that's about Jerry Gary sings, and that was it. So we we just cut the track. Is that bizarre? And, that, and of course, and Gary that's came so funny like, about Gary because Gary lives in the woods when Gary's not in the woods. Like I know that about Gary now. Like Gary lives in the woods when he's not in the woods. He's he, unapologetically, and you know that's his right. That's what it's sacred for him. I get it. I was a little thrown off at first, but you know because <laughs> you're producing a record without a singer. Well, yeah, the first, yeah, you'd think, you know, but now there was presence because I mentioned I used to play on records without singers, so. Okay, we can do this, but it just it it took me about fifteen minutes to get my head kind of. Uh, <laughs> when does Gary show up to do the vocals? Then like, <laughs> whenever he wanted to, <laughs> whenever it wasn't hunting season, you know. I mean, he 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 would come in and and he'd just come over to the house and and you know, you know, he'd get it, have his chewing tobacco, you know, point me in the direction, and he'd just go in there and wail, and you know, just does what he does. He's 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 beautifully. Naive is not the right word. Detached in a lot of ways. He is such a pure talent, and he just does it when he does it. You know, it's just it's he's not like a guy who likes to be in the studio. And I, there's a freshness about it. It takes a little while to get used to it, but I, I love that story and that song. That song um, that that was that was a massive part in in kind of another validation for me as a producer here in town. How about this one? So you work with Taylor. Yeah. Yeah, what's she like to work with as an artist? Oh, she's great. I mean, I, that song, you know, I'm trying to think how that came down. I think that was that was kind of in her transition era, and, and they weren't they weren't roping that. And so I think she'd already done the vocals, and, and uh, Scott Bruschetta um, said, I don't think she's going to come in and re-sing. I think you gotta, you're going to have to use that, but could you recut the track? So she had already cut the vocals yeah. somewhere else. Yes, and so they just give that to you and say, "Make the song happen." Yes, yeah, it was it was a little bit bizarre. They just want you know, and this happens to all of us. This is a tough thing, and, and, and it just happened to me just recently too. You know, sometimes you don't get it, you know, and 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 the label and the artist really think that that the song is is the deal. They got to get it done, and if and you know, sometimes you look at it's like you look at a painting so close. That's how it is to you, and you can. And her producer at that time, Nathan Chapman, who is I don't and I know Nathan, yeah. This guy is genius level. I, I think he's one of the best that we got here in Nashville, and he's a, one of the best people I know too. So it was tough on Nate, and he was he was man, he was so pro about it. He was so cool, and he just sent me over the vocals. He said, hey, "Have a go at this thing, man." You know, he said, "I'm just I'm I'm I, I'm looking at it. it's too close for me," and so so I took it and you know had a had a different kind of take on it and, and went and did it. And so you send it. And did you, since she already sent you the vocals, did you work with her, or did you just work with her voice that was in a recorded little? Well, hard mostly drive? on that, the voice, the voice had been recorded. I can't remember if I did. It was a while back, so I can't remember if I redid harmony vocals or or what. I remember she came over to the house once to re-sing a couple of lines that I wanted to try, and that was that was basically. It. She's great. I mean, she's, she's Taylor Swift. You say you missed. What did you miss on? You say you missed recently. What did you miss? It was, it was, you want me to tell you the story? The yeah. Story? Yeah. 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 It was, it, I mean, I don't think I mixed, missed, but, but I was, I was doing a song with Keith and, and it was, you know, and 
because of my, I guess, my age, my status in the industry, I, I inherit a lot of projects like this. And I, and I see the pain in the, the producers that have worked their, their ass off, basically, to get this stuff right. And all of a sudden, they're calling in this old geezer, you know, to, to fix it. And so, and it's, it's, it's hurtful. It just really is. It's a business, right? And usually, I know how to finish. I'm a, I'm a really good finisher on this stuff. So, um, so I get it, you know, and it, and it, and it doesn't happen to me a lot. I will say that. But, but it, the other day, I was doing a song with Keith and, and uh, actually Ross Copperman and I were doing it together. And, it, and I think we did a really good job, but just Keith heard it differently. And, and he, and he took it somewhere else. So it's like, you get a little, you know, you, you, you gotta learn how to take it. I mean, this is, you know, you get benched in, in, in pro sports, you get benched in music. I mean, you know, as a player, they race my parts at times. And, and, and it's, it's one thing to, to, you get it intellectually, but you still, it hurts. It never, it never gets, you never get used to, to getting replaced on something. It just you, happens here. You mentioned Keith and Ross, and I'll hit this one here because in different ways, they were both involved in this with you. I'm telling you. Blue ain't your color. Yeah. yeah. Ross wrote, if I'm right, because Ross is a friend of mine. Didn't Ross, Ross write that one? Didn't Ross I don't write think, this? no, he actually he writes one of the only hits in Nashville Did that he? Ross didn't write. Okay, so Stephen, Stephen Lee Olson wrote it. Mm-hmm. I know. I Did you produce with Ross? No. I, I do. Uh, Keith and I. So Ross had nothing to do with the song. No. I'm just giving Ross every hit for every every credit for every hit. I guess there is. That's no, great. No, it's good. No, no. I, actually, he didn't on that one. Um, but you know, you know what I think yeah, about Ross. He's, he's Stephen Lee Olson, Stephen Lee Olson, Hillary Lindsay, Lindsay, and Clint Lagerberg. Lagerberg. Wow. Sorry about that, Ross. I gave you extra credit. So, but this is you. You produce this song here. I'm telling you. Which, if when Keith comes to you and says, "Hey, I want a song to feel a certain way," does he do that on this song and go, "Hey, I need it to feel"? And then, yeah. what does that song feel like? With Keith, Keith and I go back to somebody like you, right? And, his, and it was bizarre. I mean, I don't think he wanted to work with me at first because because he didn't like the records that I was producing. But it, it worked out. That was the first song that we actually did together. And then I don't know how I many we did like six records straight. And now I, I work with him. I don't do all of his records. I mean, you know, you, there, there's a certain amount, you know, you, you kind of s- squeeze the, uh, the the fruit and that's, you know, you can only get so much. But we keep returning because there's something that we have. Um, and it's really undefinable, Bobby. I, I don't know how to tell you, like when Keith and I get in a room that we usually do no prep, he'll just play me a song and go, what do you think? And we just start, we usually pick up guitars. Do you ever say no? Uh, on Keith, I don't, it's never worked out where I haven't been able to do it. No, I've, I've um, you know, interesting song uh, on that same record. The first single I did, I did with him, Ross wrote it. He didn't produce it, but he wrote uh, the John 316 song. The John Deere. Yeah, John Deere. John Cougar, John Deere, John yeah. 316. And I think, I think actually Keith took that one. To Nathan Chapman first, and I think Nathan just was like, uh, it was a, a totally different song at that point, and and Nate just said, you know, I just I just don't hear it, which is fine, you know, and, and and so Keith called me up. I was second call on that one, you know, and, and we went in the studio, and I, we just I think it was a drummer and and uh, Keith and I that was it, and the bass player was going to come in, and the bass player hadn't shown up yet, and we were just kind of strumming through ideas. I grabbed a guitar, started playing something. He said, Oh, I dig that. Let's okay. Well, is there a bass here? So he grabbed the bass. And all of a sudden, the identity of the song happened that quickly when, when he played bass. Poor bass player came in right on time for his big Keith Urban session. I think it was his debut session. And I had to say, bass player, hey, I think we got the bass part. It was yeah, like, it was yeah, Keith. It was Keith. <laughs> yeah, it was Keith. And it, but it was really good. You know, Keith always thought we were going to replace it, but it had so, so much personality. 
all that to say, with Keith and I, there is no, we have no set way of doing things. I mean, a lot of times he'll come over to, to the house or I'll go over to his house. We, we hand guitars back and forth, you know, and, and uh, we have a certain understanding as guitar players and songs just kind of emanate out of that, you know. Urban as a player, where would he be in this studio session world if he decided to be a studio player? Is, um, he, is, he, is he? Well, no. Keith is a is a great musician. He's a great guitar player. He has an identity, which which doesn't necessarily translate into studio work because studio sometimes it's 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 the, the ability to take on different identities. So. Um, the talent, I don't, I don't think Keith reads, his, his musical IQ is off the charts, so he could adapt to anything. Um, how that would translate in day-to-day session work, I don't know. I guess it's a different linear versus non-linear mindset. Yeah, totally. And it's not... And it's, I never thought about it like that before. Yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, it's, 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 it's like the idea, that the, the, the foolish notion of saying, who's the best drummer, who's the best guitar player in the world? That you can, how can you compare... You know, how could you compare a Keith Richards to a Andre Segovia? You can't, that comparison, they both play guitar, but that's, it's a different world. You Who know? have you seen play as a, a player, like a fan, that's not, where you're just like, man, I can never do that. Like that you've seen with your own eyeballs and you're like, I, I don't, I, there's no way. I'm humbled like that all the time. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things I can do, like I can do, I, just because I practice so much in my life. Um, I mean, there were some, there were some like, like jazz players like Joe Pass. I could, I could never play like that. I couldn't uh, chicken pick like Brent Mason does on some of those records in the nineties, those Alan Jackson records. I could play the notes, but they wouldn't sound like that. So, so it's more, it's more like, it's not that physically I can't do those things. It's like that. I know they'll never sound that good. Artist wise, who have you been blown away by with their style and how good they were? Like we would, like, like they really are as legit as we see them. Like you mentioned, Keith Richards. I don't know if you have ever seen Keith play, yeah, like in I person. Have, yeah. When you see Keith Richards play, what do you see? Uh, the soundtrack to my my life. I mean, it's it's not that what Keith can do I couldn't do when I was twelve years old or ten, for that fact. I mean, it's not it's not that hard to do, but to do it like he does it, it that that's a lifetime, and nobody can do it but him. Keith Keith has has really I think d- developed into that soul as a, as a musician. He speaks, I think the highest compliment I could play, pay to Keith is that when you hear him play guitar, you can you know it's Keith Urban. And I think that that identity, that's very hard to achieve. It's a different scale than a studio musician who's, who's having to, to, to wear 10 hats maybe in the course of a, of a week. What about like a guy, like a John Mayer? Oh, he's stunning. Stunning. Great. He's he's like a student of guitar. I mean, it's like, uh, and his identity changes quite a bit. I mean, he he's rhythmically his chops are first rate. He he can play Jeff Beck almost like Jeff Beck, and that's a pretty high compliment because that's my favorite guitar player. Um, he's a blues aficionado. I mean, he he can play pretty much anything. Rod Phillips is the head of iHeart Country, and he talks about how a song gets on the radio and how that process works. Rod also talks about why certain songs get played more than others. But educate me on how a song ends up on the radio, because it's got to go through a lot of steps before that. Sure. Well, it really starts outside of our industry being the radio industry. It starts from the artist and probably the manager working with the label, meaning the folks that that run uh, Universal Records or Warner Music Nashville. They go to their label and they've got people who work in A&R uh, who 
are picking what they think are the best songs in terms of we think this sound has the best chance to be a hit, typically on the radio or wherever else they're pushing music. So songs come to you already like, this is the song. Correct. They not come not they, here's 11 songs, pick whichever one to play on the radio. Correct. It's a single song from an album or the next single from the album. And they say, we think this has the best shot. We hope you agree because we're going to push this. Now, as a program director, either on a national or local level, I can go get a different song. But if I'm going to be the only one playing it and everybody else is playing the song that a bunch of people who are experts in their own field have picked, then you're always sort of just going to be an outlier and you're not participating in the song that's most likely going to be a hit. And it's hard sense. to change a single song's trajectory by being one or two or just five stations. Correct. It almost has to be a, uh, a unified front as proposed by the record label. Correct. So they come to you, they say, this is the single, Kick and Fish. I just made that up. So they bring you Kick and Fish, and you're a radio, you're the guy. But do, do, does every single get pitched to you? Like every single one of them? From every artist? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So they all every song comes to you, but then what do you do, especially if it's a new artist? Well, <laughs> I mean, that's a loaded question. Um, you know, we, we, at any given time, there are mm, probably 75 to 90 songs being pitched. Oh, all new. Like 75 to 90 new songs. Yeah, well, let's just say, let's say 30 of them are, 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 are already solidly on the chart, what you play in your countdown. Okay. So now there's what? There's 45, call it. 45, 50, sometimes 60 songs. And you're choosing from those songs to decide one or two to put on a playlist that week. I mean, you might put three or four on in a week sometimes, but that's it, you usually don't have that much room. I mean, there, there's usually the 30 songs you have to play because they're, they're solidly on the chart, some other stuff you're playing in a new category. Now you're deciding from the rest what you think has the best chance. Now, if I know that Dirks Bentley's coming out with a song, he just released Gold, I think it's fantastic. Suddenly that kind of goes to the front of the, the line, if you will, from a selection process. Um, but all, all of them are available. And then to the point we made earlier, if Noah Schnacky's got a song in Minneapolis and Greg thinks that's good, he may go and get that one, and that might be the 66th song being pitched. Um, so it's... That's why it's not easy. I mean, you know, Luke Combs emerging and becoming a superstar is 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 not the norm. So if Kick and Fish is presented, someone calls me and goes, "No, man, I like that song. My butt wears a cowboy hat, and if you don't play that, you ain't country." Mm -hmm. That's not on us because it wasn't presented to for the most part radio. Right. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even an option to, because anyone in radio knows if they play it, they're by themselves, and right. if they're going to create a story, it's going to take forever because it's one station. Right. So it isn't the person's fault at the radio station it isn't the person's fault that's running the radio company it's not anyone's fault it was just a song was chosen by the record label and the artist yep i think there's and i would be confused about that too if i hadn't worked inside of this for a long time but also i'm i'm almost starting to be a bit disconnected from the radio part of it mm -hmm. because i don't do that really as much anymore yeah which i like that because then i get feedback from you on other stuff that's yeah, I mean, that, that, I, that I haven't heard about yet. I like that too. Yeah. I'm being honest with you. Yeah, no, that, it's, it's a good thing. <laughs> People be like, why does radio... I'm like, bro, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. You know, and I'd be like, well, let me call Rod and ask a question or two, but I really don't know anymore. So, okay, you have a song that goes 
and you're picking it, you're putting in new music. Is there like a national new music category? Because the national, that's that's quite the big word with a lot of, if it's playing national, it's getting a lot of spins. Not on the verge, but where would you put a song that you like? That's a, that's a song you're like, I think this has got a lot of potential. Do you put it at every station at 2 p.m.? Do you put it, like, what do you do as soon as the song's new artist, new song, you believe in it, but it's not the On The Verge? Well, I don't put them at, at every station in terms of the the stations that iHeart owns. Um, but again, I, I, I have influence in terms of, when, when you say national, we have some programs that do go out nationally. Your show, Women of iHeart Country, you obviously pick some music for that. We pick some music for that. So when we pick the songs that go on that show, it plays... You know that weekend on 150 different radio stations, or 125, really. Um, but you know, because we're sort of the na- we control the national pieces, we're not taking as many out there, out of left field chances as individual stations or regions of the country might be. If that makes so you sense. let them experiment we're sort a little of more. Take, yeah, we're sort if of they taking screw the, up. It's not going to hurt as bad, right? We're and taking the best of the best, if you will. Yeah. Um, and, and then the, the the ones that are going to be the best, it's okay that we don't go with them immediately because I, I always say the the I, I do believe the hits rise right to the top. I mean, it's hard to hold a real hit down. I'm sure there's a lot of great music that never makes it because it's like there's great basketball players who the NBA never discovered, right? Um, but for the most part, the best hits, I think, do make it through the clutter, if you will, of a lot of really good music. Um, but from a national standpoint, we can sort of wait and see what pops out of the you know, Southwest or um, out of Florida or something that then shows itself that wasn't already obvious. Do you get, at your position, people going, what are you doing, man, in any country? For or does mu- that, yeah. mu- music? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah it's yeah, still, yeah, that sure. reaches you. Oh, yeah. Mm. Who would tell you that? Um, well, so that's a good point. When, when, when you asked it, I, I get the feedback because we also, a uh, big radio company, we still do more research probably. But than nobody anybody. comes to you. I, I'm saying because if somebody, mm. you don't have a face that people know and connect with country music because right. you're the guy making the decisions. You ain't the guy that's up front being like, I'm the mm. guy. I have that. I have the face that's up front. People can get to me very easily. They can call yep. me. They can message me. And you know, they're like, you suck. You're not country. This music's not country. So I hear it all the time. Yeah, that's true. I guess it's not a one-on-one personal. People are not contacting me personally. But I feel the feedback because we ask a lot of people and then we roll up under research teams. But what are, what are country fans in total saying about, you know, the strength or lack of strength or what they like about country music, what they don't like about country music. So research, I don't know. What is that? So research is like any company. They reach out to consumers. I mean, we find ways to find people who listen to the radio, who listen to the Bobby Bone show, who listen to country radio and don't listen to your show, um, who, who consume country music on streaming, but not so much on radio. We talk to all those people. In other words, we reach out to them and we talk to them about why they're using things, and you collect that data. But you also reach out to those people, and and now it's online. They people go and listen to pieces of music online, so and they tell us what they like. And go here's the link. We and- can definitely find people. We can definitely send them to. And this happens in you know the auto industry. I mean, I get them all the time. Well, you go and we want to ask you questions about Ford trucks. Um, so we do the same thing. How many people do you think is a good sample size for a week of? making decisions about music? Well, um, I mean, I can tell you that, that, that radio 
stations can can use a hundred people and feel good about it. Now, that that's sort of over time too. You wouldn't want to go and have one research project for the year and talk to a hundred people in any town. It's it's too narrow. But if you're consistently talking to a group of a hundred and another group of a hundred, another group of a hundred, over time you can see what people's tendencies are, if you will. So you use I mean most research companies don't talk to even when you, you look at a Gallup poll, I mean you would probably know better than me, but uh, they'll survey where where the presidential race is and they'll be talking to nationwide couple thousand people. Yeah, nationwide. Yeah, like yeah. N- not a lot. So but what you're saying is you do depend on people's opinions sure. on the on, format on the on actual the yeah, artist, the actual on the music. Song, yeah. We ask them what they think about Luke Bryan as a persona versus, you know, here's Luke Bryan's song, what do you think of it? Um, we ask them what they think about their radio station, what they think about the morning show on that radio station. We ask them a lot of stuff. Let's take a quick pause for a message from our sponsor. This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan. Unlimited data, talk, and text on a reliable 5G network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision making. Available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. Family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. In times of traffic, your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic. Video streams at up to 480p. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back on the Bobbycast. 
CMA Awards producer Robert Deaton talks about what goes into an awards show and the biggest risks he's ever taken. Robert also shares how Chris Stapleton, Justin Timberlake, and that performance came together. Remember, it blew everybody away and kind of launched Chris Stapleton into the mainstream. What does a producer do? Because I think a lot of people see it on TV pop up and go, producer, you know, Robert Deaton. They don't really know what that entails. So, like, if you were to go talk to, explain it like I'm five, what does a producer do? So, every creative decision goes through me. So, set design, lighting design, individual performances, who gets on the show, what are they going to sing, every single aspect of the show goes through me. So now I have a great team, of course. I got great people, lighting designers, set designer. I think that, you know, a producer has to have good taste. You know, I think that's really important. Um, so yeah, everything goes through me, every creative decision. Uh, just, I'm going to veer around a bit. When you talk about creative decisions and at times you take risks as a producer. And I don't know if this is a risk or not, but I was watching the CMA um, festival special. Yeah. And to me, I thought Brothers Osborne stole the show. Killed it. Now, I'm biased because I love those guys and I'm friends with those guys. Yeah. But I really thought they stole the show. And there was a point where there was a really long John guitar solo. Yes. On network TV in prime time. Seven minutes. And I'm thinking to myself, as it's happening, like, I love this and I enjoy this, but that was a risk. That was a risk. And I think it paid off. But for you to put that, first of all, Brothers Osborne, who to the mainstream aren't so known yet. Correct. And a guitar solo for that long. Right. Like what? Sometimes I feel like you have to do do it because it's great. You know, you, you, you sure I'm, I answer to the ratings and I answer to ABC and in <clears throat> the CMA, but sometimes isn't the answer good enough that it's just great. And so it was great. And there was you know, and I didn't know them. I, I met them the, the day of. That's when I met them during rehearsal. And they, I'm, I'm in the truck and I'm looking at going, oh man, I'm gonna have to cut this down. It's like, this is going on and on and on. And then you, you watched how he, it was genius how he created that guitar solo, that how the movements worked in it and how it progressed. And so we looked at it in the edit and I was like, oh, we just got to do it. I was like, let's just put it in and see if ABC says anything. <laughs> that, that's such a like that's such a big time commitment for such an out of the box thing. It is. Did you think they were going to come back and say you need to cut? I this? did. I did think they were going to cut. I, I thought. I thought they would call back. Luckily, um, you know, there's music guys. You're a music guy, right? You get, you know, growing up, I was all, all growing up. I was about TV and. TV shows and music. That's all I was about. Just, I would look on the back of the album covers, you know, who played on this record and who did that. And I just love music. And so luckily, uh, there's a guy at ABC. He came over from, from Kimmel. He was the music booker. I know him. Scott. Iger. I know him really well. Yeah. 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 He's a great guy. Yeah. Great guy. And so, uh, Scott called me and said, I love the brothers Osborne. I was like, great, we're going to keep it all, right? And he's like, absolutely, keep it all. So Scott was the guy that saw it and said, this is good, let's keep yeah, it. It's yeah. like the perfect team. <laughs> it is. Like, it's two music lovers. <laughs> the ABC is in trouble. <laughs> no, but no, surely it is two music lovers. And, and again, 
I w- I've booked things again just because it's th- it's the right thing to do, like Girl Crush. You know, when I first booked it, I booked it for the Billboard Awards, and it wasn't the hit now that everybody remembers in the award winning. And uh, it was just one of those things, man. It's like we should book this because it's great, and uh, and we did. Talk to me a second. We'll just stay on the CMA Awards for a minute. There's a lot, but we're let's... talking about a risk. Can I? Can I? The open last year's CMA Awards was a risk. Last year's? Are you uh, mean this fiftieth? Oh, in Dallas? Uh, no, no, the fiftieth for me here in Nashville. The fiftieth anniversary of the CMA Awards. The oh, opening, that's right. That's right. Opening, oh, with because all the acts. Because all the acts. It was a legendary. That's right. Because you had a lot of legends. That was and some risk. of them were really older. 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 Right. Like. Because what it was, I'm remembering now, what it was is they all played part of a song. And at the beginning of the CMAs, it was like this. One song after another. Of all different greats. Yes. But some of them were really old. Well, I, you know. It was struggled. It, it was a risk. And I will tell you, I had calls from people going, wow, you are really, wow. Just managers going, by the way, we're for you. We want you to do this. Uh, and when you get, when you see, you know, when you get Charlie Daniels or Roy Acuff, I mean, I'm sorry, Charlie Daniels or Roy Clark, and they're thanking you for being there. It's like, you don't need to thank me. You've earned being here, but it was, it was a risk, but it was also the rehearsal was tough, man. It was like, it was a nightmare. But, it, okay. But you had people you could fall back on. Like, I remember if Again, I'm just going from memory here, but like Paisley was... Paisley and he, Carrie Underwood and Alabama and Roy Clark and... And they were in it. So it was almost like a balancing act where you kind of had to stack someone who maybe was older and couldn't move as well as they used to against someone who could just in case. That's correct. It was funny. We were... Like I said, the night, we never did get a, one full rehearsal. <laughs> I mean, the first time you saw it was on the air. And so it was just like... You know, because we were bouncing back and forth between bands, between Brad's band and Carrie's band, and it was it was so important to me though. But so it was a train wreck nightmare, the rehearsal. So I'm walking across the stage. I got my head down, and I hear a voice. Looked better on paper, didn't it? And it was Vince Gill. <laughs> I'm like, it'll be fine. And Vince is like, yeah, it'll be good. It'll be good. Who was it that was? struggling rehearsal where you're like, man, you know what it was? It wasn't necessarily artists struggling. It was the number of artists and the time, you know, just the time period of going from one to the next. Cause you know, like it's transitions, all, it's transitions. It was the transitions and it wasn't any one particular artist. Um, we had a hard time with, of all things, we had a hard time with, uh, mountain music, Alabama, Alabama. Yeah. Of all things, just musically, you know, we were playing the wrong chord or something and only Randy could hear it. And it was like, so that took a minute, but it was just the the sheer number of artists back and forth. But I will tell you, it came off. I've looked at it 500 times. It's like my the proudest thing I've ever done. So once you do that and it comes off early on in a TV show and that's the hardest thing, were you able to kind of go a little bit, even though it was early in the show? Yeah. Well, I will tell you the first reaction is... Uh, we could be men in here, right? But I cried. 
It was like oh, none of us are men in here. We're all no, we're not. No, okay, no, no. Yeah, yeah. No, okay, there's nothing manly about this room. <laughs> Me either. Yeah. So I cried. It was when I knew. By the time we got to Allen, I knew we were, were through it, and I knew it was great. And then, because you know what, growing up, I grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina. And my dad worked, my father worked at a television station. He had a Friday night country music show. I was five, six, seven, eight, nine years old. And he had a, and I was on the show. I was a uh, square dancer on the show. So, and uh, so what he would do is book all the country music Grand Ole Opry stars that were coming through. Buck Owens, Ray Pilla, Jack Green, Jenny Seeley. So I was always around this as a kid. So I felt pressure even in that. I was like, I got to get this right. Not for me, but for them and for the history and what we're, what we're trying to accomplish. So yeah, I cried at the end of it. And then, and I did feel that way. I felt like we're going to be, cause I knew what I had coming up too. I knew I had George Strait and Alan Jackson. I knew I had this great duet with Garth and Tricia. You know, I had Garth singing. Don't close your eyes by Keith Whitley. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. So I knew I had those things that you kind of like the old Al Jolson thing. You ain't seen nothing yet. I felt that way. Um, but it was a lot of pressure. I have you to think for a big part of my career that, that some things that I get to do as far as breaking artists. So I'll set you up with the story and then you'll see where you come into play here. Uh, and it's been, now I don't even know the timeline, but there, I kept, there was this artist that lived in town. He was a songwriter and I kept bringing him in and nobody knew who he was. I kept bringing him in and he didn't have a record out or anything. I called him. The first time I ever called him, I called him at home. He was in the shower and he's like, Hey, let me call you back. Let me call you back. I'm, I'm wet I'm in the shower. I'm like, right, cool. So he came up. Nobody knew he was blew the roof off. Second time I came up. Nobody, I started getting in trouble for bringing him in because my bosses who don't, some of them don't listen to the show because they're national. They're in New York or LA and they're like, Hey, we're, People are reporting back that Bobby, who has 5 million listeners, so why is he playing this unknown artist on the show that doesn't have any hits? So my direct boss said, hey, what's up? What are you playing this dude? I was like, trust me, he's really good. And then thank you, Robert Deaton, because you put Stapleton on with Justin Timberlake. <laughs> and it was, it's, that's the, I think it's the biggest moment in the, in the past five years of the CMA. I think that's the biggest moment that, and I don't know how you did, because I want to ask what what went into that decision, but you made me look brilliant. <laughs> like you putting that and creating that, that's what made Stapleton what he is to people. He already was awesome. Yes. People just hadn't Incredible. seen it yet. I Incredible. Would, he would come to my studio, I'd be blown away. I'd be like, how is this guy? Not something. But you're the one who put him on. And because of you, I get to break artists like crazy now. Like my company's like, <sighs> you know what? I quit. You just do you. And because you put those two together, they finally gave me the, you go ahead you, okay, we'll, we'll leave you alone. So I got to know. First of all, thank you very much for that. <laughs> Secondly, how did that come together? Well, I had been already in touch with Justin for several years and trying to figure out a way to get him on the show. We were close one year. We thought we were going to do a remote from, I think it was in New Jersey. Uh, and then, you know what? The, uh, his manager called and said, listen, he, he, definitely wants to do the CMA awards one day, but he wants, when he does them, he wants to do them in the room. He wants to be there. I'm like, I totally get it. And you know what? He should be here. Cause this is a great room. You know, it's like, 
if 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 you're an artist and you haven't done the the CMA Awards, it, it's like I have people at a genre all the time going, I had the best time. It was awesome. I loved the people. The the there's writers and right. You know, it's just great. So, uh, I I found out through uh, Chris Stapleton's management that they were friends. That and uh, and, and so I reached out and Chris reached out, but we both reached out. When like, you got the yeah, he'll do it. It was on the phone with Justin. Really? Yeah. So this is what happened. So. How much? So the questions are from Justin. Well, how much time do we have? And I said, as much as you want. <laughs> you know, it's like, because, well, first of all, let me back up this one bit. My son, you know, he was a, I guess, junior in high school at the time. Like, I, I mean, I knew Chris Stapleton's record backwards and forwards like every note because my son was such a huge fan from the day the record came out. So I am constantly hearing this record. The Traveler. Right, right. Traveler. And it's a great record. Uh, and so I knew everything about the record. Uh, and then he comes out with all these nominations. That was, the, that, that was, I will tell you, that was a surprise. He's so beloved in the industry that a lot of people in Nashville were like, this is the underdog guy who's so good that's unknown, we're voting for him. Correct. Yeah. So he gets all the nominations and you go, okay. All right. So then we reach out to Chris. So then we have a telephone call. It's myself, Chris Stapleton, Justin Timberlake, and management. So the questions are, again, how much time do we have? It's like, how much do you want? You can have whatever you want. I, this this is going to be great. And then the other question was, where are we going to be in the show? And I said, you know, where are you, you know, for most people don't know, but, but the highest rated show, uh, the highest rated points of a television show are crossing the hours. So I was like, let's cross the first hour. I said, and then I said, are those the right answers? And Justin started laughing and Chris and Justin's like, yeah, those are the right answers. So then you have to decide what to do. Now, who gets to, because it was Drink You Away, and it was um, uh, the, the, the David Allen Co. Uh, Stapleton cover. Yes. Um, help me out, Mike D. What's that? How, how do you guys decide on the song? Tennessee Whiskey. Tennessee Whiskey. Thank you very much. Yeah. So, so they decided on that. So they, and they come to you and say, hey, this is what we'd like to this do. This is what we'd like to do. And you say... I say, of course, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> of course, <laughs> you know, this is what we want to do. And it, but I tell you what was interesting though, because, you know, you know, uh, as far as the look is concerned, you know, a lot of artists like Justin Timberlake, they bring in, you know, tons of people from Los Angeles or wherever. And, uh, we got on the phone and we're like, this is what we, we all, the three of us kind of decided what we thought it ought to look like. And, uh, and then we just did it. Did you, you feel know? like it was special the first time they did it together on stage? I did. I thought it was really great. Okay. There's a lot of, but there, I did there, not a few greats a night. Yes. I thought it was great. Okay. I did not, I did not know that. So we do the rehearsal and it's, it's great. Okay. It's obviously going to be a moment. Justin. 
came up to me at the producer's table and said, don't worry about it. I'll really bring it up tonight. I was like at 50%. I was like, Oh, okay, great. Thanks. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I'm already on to the next rehearsal. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I mean, it was very polite of him to do that and very professional. Um, but yeah, but they brought it up. Did, did they you ever? know it was a thing when it was happening? Live? Yes. When it was live. Yes, I did know it was, you could feel even backstage, you could feel the room changing. Uh, and then what we also started doing was, seeing the reaction of every of of the audience i mean you can for me it was mind blown was, it was crazy my mind was blown i was like this is the greatest thing i've seen this mix of uh, all of it i just started telling the camera guys start shooting the audience you know because that was also the story like you i mean you cut to anybody you cut to any artist and you can it, it's there's no it, it it was genuine genuine love genuine genuine awe you know i think there was all for justin timberlake and going oh my gosh it's justin timberlake and i think there was love for chris stapleton and a holy crap like how have we not known this guy until right now right martha earls who is kane brown's manager talks to me here about how she got into management and how and why kane brown caught her attention way back in 2015 when you want to get into management at that age, you know, 20s, early 30s, what is management? What did it mean to you then? Oh, my gosh. I had no idea. I mean, it's really I'm so fortunate because the first artist that I managed was just up and coming. And so he allowed me to learn alongside him. So I remember I thought we had him. He was opening up for Rodney Atkins. Who's he? His name's Greg Bates. He does. I, he had one. He had I know one who Greg hit Bates is, yeah. did it for the girl. Great songwriter. And he, uh, so we, so he was opening for Rodney Atkins at like a casino in Biloxi, Mississippi. And I was like, all right, this, we got a gig. And so I didn't know. So I thought you had to advance the gig. And so I, I don't know why I called the casino. I, I should have just called Rodney Atkins, whatever <laughs> you learn. I called the casino and this like grouchy man was like, you want to, you want to advance the gig? And I was like, yeah, uh, yes, I do. And he was like, okay, well, all right, what do you need? And I was like, I have no idea. And he goes, okay, how many DIs do you need? I don't know what a DI is. And he was, and then he just starts laughing. And so then he just starts telling me a DI is your guy playing a guitar? Yes. Okay. You need a DI because he's going to plug his guitar in. Is he singing? And I said, yes. Okay. You need a microphone. Is he bringing anyone else? No. Okay. You just advanced your first show. And I was like, all right, that's easy. <laughs> and so I guess you go to your first show. Yeah, we go. We go? drove Did down you? there. I had a I had a red um, Volkswagen Jetta and drove all the way. It's a long, long drive to Biloxi. Because it's water. It's got to drive all the way down the water. It's way down there. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you finish your first show. Is it like a, is it a high? Is it your first? It's amazing. You're like, we just did it. Our first show. I just got me 15%. And you know what? A, yeah. yeah. I mean, it wasn't, I mean, if you do the math, it's not, it wasn't, I spent more in gas, but that's okay. So what did you learn from your time with Greg? If I were to say you get one lesson to share with the world about your time with Greg as a manager, what'd you learn? I would say that I learned that, God, that's a great question. I would say during my time with him, I learned how to be confident in being a manager and be confident in asking questions and saying, I don't know but I'm going to go figure it out. I'm going to f go find out. I'm going to go, I'm going to admit that I don't know the answer to something. 
because you were inexperienced, I'm assuming there was a fear in admitting you were inexperienced because then people would think of you as inexperienced. Yeah, I mean, there was there was some of that, but I, you know, I, I did, I did ask a lot of questions, and a lot of people helped me. You know, a lot of people. His booking agent, Mark Dennis, who works at CA, he was really helpful. Um, early days, the label, Jimmy Harnon, Scott, they were great. They were very help, patient with me. So from Greg, then what happens? So when I was working at another management company, so I had, we did the big machine deal. I knew I wanted to do management full time. I went to work with a management company and I really learned a ton there. And that was with um, a manager named Jason Owen, who manages Casey Musgraves and Dan and Shay and a bunch of people. And so when I started working there, they had just... Uh, launched the Casey album, that first, that amazing record. Same trailer? Different yeah. yeah. And I remember just observing how they did it. And it was so different than coming from a big, big machine where country radio was the, the, that was the biggest promotion, the way you promote an artist to more like media marketing with Casey. It was just fascinating to watch. And so I was able to learn, wow, there's different ways that you can reach people. And that, I think, is something that I've applied even now with Kane. We have to reach people in different ways because not everybody's paying attention to a New York Times article, but also not everybody is listening to the radio all the time either. So working with Jason, what was your job? there? Was it to help on a bunch of artists? Did you have your own artists that you were day-to-day on? So I had, I was a day-to-day because I brought Greg with me and I was a day-to-day. And then Jason was, uh, the, his company was going through a, tra- a tra- I don't, I don't want to say too much of his business, but it was going through a transitional period. So I wasn't able to really sign anything. And then, um, so then I left because I was bored. <laughs> I wanted to work on more projects. And so I left and, uh, that would have been in, January of 2015, I left and kind of said, I'm going to go out on my own. I want to sign some more things because I wasn't really able to do that at Sandbox, which is his company. And so then I was just kind of on my own and I signed some art, so just was working with some artists. And um, and I said, and, and this sounds like a very um, Oprah thing to say, but I, in January of 2015, I was like, I'm going to say yes to everything because something is out there. I can feel it. I know there's something coming and I, I don't want to miss it because I say no. So I was approached by a guy named Jay Frank to be a consultant for his company that he had, which was an independent record label. And so I said, okay, yeah, all right, I'll go try this out. Yes, I'll do it. Meanwhile, managing a couple other little acts. And then I got in there and Jay said, hey, also, we have this one guy. He's a country guy we signed. We saw him online. Um, His name's Kane Brown. He's from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And Jay Jay admitted, he said, "I, I don't really know if I know what to do with it. And I said, well, let me meet him. And I met Kane and I said to Jay, I said, everything else you're working on, like respectfully, this is the thing. This is the thing. And he was like, okay, all right, go why, work on Why? It. What struck you in a, in a meeting with Kane? Well, Kane, when the first meeting I had with him, he didn't, you know, Kane's shy. He's very, very shy. And so, and he's come out of his shell quite a bit as he's gotten older, but he was very shy and didn't say much. But he just has, there is a, he has a charisma to him where when he walks in the room, like, you turn your head. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he has, like, almost that, like, energy, force field energy that, like, draws you in. And so I was, he's an incredible singer, and I, um, he's obviously biracial, and I was fascinated by um, how he had marketed himself online on Facebook. He marketed himself, you know, and he was, and he understood. He would say, you know, those early videos when he was going viral, I mean, he was, he was growing he was growing 25,000 followers a day and we would watch it because he would post a video 
and he would say, I'm going to sing a cover of Check Yes or No by George Strait. And most people were like, this guy? You know, because country music didn't look like Kane Brown in 2015. And that's part of that's part of the attraction to me, too, is that country music didn't look like Kane Brown. And now it does a little bit more, I think. With you meeting Kane, I mean, I, he maybe he didn't, but he kind of had to say yes to you, too. Or did he just not have any leverage at all and was like, I'll take anybody that's smart that knows what's going on? No, he did. He had another guy that was working with him at the company. And um, and so I was always just very like, hey, if you ever need, if you have a question, I can help you answer it. And then uh, one day he sent me a text message. It's like classic Kate. He sent me a text message and said, hey, do you, do you want to be my person? And I was like, I picked up the phone and called him. I was like, dude, of course. Yeah, I'll be your person. He's like, Okay. And then that was that was kind of that. Which I asked that question asking, why do you think Kane felt like you were the right person for him? I think because um, even before I was his quote person, I took him, he wanted to hear some songs and he wanted to meet some songwriters. And I, I think he creatively, I think he knew that I understood like musically where he wanted to go and, and put and introduced him to some people and, and I never asked anything in return for that. Um, and then I don't know, like personality-wise, like we, like we always just kind of connected. Hey, thanks for listening to this special of the Bobbycast, behind the scenes of the music industry part one. Stay tuned for part two coming out later this week. We got a lot more here. And then make sure you're subscribed to the Bobbycast wherever you are listening to this now. And then please rate it five stars. This has been a Bobbycast production. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.